Welcome to Invasion Conspiracy. My name is Steven Zuber. And I'm Inyash Brodsky. And we have with us today Max Harms. Max, why don't you introduce yourself? Oh my goodness. So, I'm Max Harms. Uh, probably the thing that listeners will know me the best for is that I wrote Crystal Society, and I just put out uh, Crystal Mentality, which is the sequel, um, which are science fiction novels about artificial intelligence and minds and have a lot to do with rationality. I also was a leader in the Columbus, Ohio, or Central Ohio rationality scene for many years, and I recently just moved to um, Berkeley, California. Oh, yeah. Probably the most important thing that we should tell our listeners is that Max Harms is actually your real name. That's right. It's not a pseudonym. I actually intend to destroy the universe, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> awesome. Your parents have a cool sense of humor. Okay, so uh, we I was thinking maybe for the first half or so we would uh, start talking about general rationality things and then like for the second half jump into crystal society and crystal mentality. Is that okay? Yeah, that sounds fine. Okay, great. Uh, so the first question we usually ask when we get an aspiring rationalist on, on uh, the phone here, not really the phone, but on Skype, is uh, what is your rationalist origin story? Because most of us, you know, weren't born into it. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I was born a little bit closer to it than most people. Um, I was raised in a secular household. Uh, I never had any sort of uh, religious background or anything like that. Some of my earliest encounters with religious stories and things like that were like reading Greek myths or, you know, like occasionally breaking out a, a role playing book. So wait, how old were you when you discovered about Christianity? You know, I, I don't know. It's it's so much a background thing in culture that like I must have, you know, I encountered it slowly, I think. And I just uh, there was never a, like a big point where I was like, whoa, this is a thing. Uh, <laughs> Like, I, I think the, 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 I was, it was after the age of reason enough or, you know, it, it was mixed in enough with things like Greek myths that it never really occurred to me that it could be true. It was never like a big deal. Did you find it really weird that other people believed in this thing? Um, so Christianity, no, I, I never really had any like seriously religious Christian friends. Um, but when I was a teenager growing up, I lived when uh, I was uh, homeschooled and one of my friends who is a homeschooler uh, was um, Orthodox Jew and his family was like kept the Sabbath and it was very, uh, very strict and he believed quite a bit. And, and so that was really interesting. Like I got I got my first exposure to like a friend who was really into uh, religion through Judaism. And you know, we had lots of good uh, philosophical conversations as teenagers are wont to do. But I, I feel like my, my rationality origin story really belongs with immortalism or um, immortality-based thinking. Because being raised in a secular household, I never really had a, a sense that I was going to live forever, right? Like there's no, no afterlife story to, um, I don't know, placate and I was bothered by my death, and I still am bothered by my death on a regular basis, right? Like, I was young, and I was just like, well, but I'm going to die. And How young were you when you realized that you were going to die and started having this existential dread? You know, I'm not sure. It started early. I remember being a young teenager and just feeling like the specter of death was looming over me on a day-to-day -day basis, or at least a week-to-week -week basis. So I was, I was convinced that I was going to die. And uh, I, I wouldn't say I made peace with it, but it's, it was just um, the sad state of affairs. 
like I didn't, I didn't like it, but I, what was I going to do about it? So I lived my day to day life, you know, just sort of dealing with that fact. And when I was about 18, I think I started watching Ted talks, uh, which were super fantastic, right? Like Ted talks are, uh, just candy for the, the teenage mind, right? Where you could just be like, whoa, the possibilities are endless. Oh, shit, I'd say it's still candy for the 30-year-old mind. <laughs> that, too. <laughs> they're quite Ted, good. not TEDx, right? Well, yes, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, like, there's, there's, uh, there are good TEDx talks and there are bad TED talks, but um, regardless, I saw a TED talk by Aubrey de Grey, and it blew my mind. I did not have a, a conception. Like, so I had, I had grown up in a culture which was like tangentially related to, I guess, singularitarian culture or extropian culture. And I had some exposure to this throughout my childhood, you know, like my parents talking about things or whatever, but it always seemed like, I don't know, it never, it never sunk in or something like that. And watching um, Aubrey de Grey, and then later I read his uh, book, Ending Aging, which is a fantastic book. I, I felt like for the first time that there was actual hope, that like death wasn't just this inevitable thing which was going to occur. And I started following anti-aging like blogs and things, and that led me to watching, like getting into singularitarian circles and uh, transhumanist circles and things like that. And, um, I got very, uh, I guess, techno utopian for a while and just like, Oh, the future is going to be so fantastic. And I, I still do believe that the future, at least some of the futures are going to be really fantastic. But at some point I watched a talk. I'm not sure when or where it was by Eliezer Yudkowsky, uh, way back in the day. And I was just like, Hmm, no, that's an interesting idea. Like maybe if we build an artificial intelligence, it won't be nice to us. And that got me thinking about like the importance of artificial intelligence. And at the time I, it didn't really, I was, I was a little bit like um, half and half on the AI safety thing. I was like, yeah, this is probably important, but it's maybe not like the biggest, most important thing. What's really important is that artificial intelligence could design artificial intelligence better than humans. And if that happens, then the world could transform way faster than I thought it would even given things like, like, I don't know, life extension technologies or all sorts of uh, super cool Moore's Law things. And so at that point, I basically shifted my entire life plan to be pushing towards AI. How long ago was that? So that was in about, let's see, I would have been 21. So that was seven years ago. Uh, so 2010. All right. You've been working on this for a while then. Yeah. Like I said, um, many years. And so in the wake of 2008, um, my father lost his job and the family decided to move out to Ohio. We had been living in Oregon at the time. And I decided to follow them instead of being in Oregon without much family around. And when I moved out, I changed, I, I lost my normal uh, social circle. And so I started looking around for people in Ohio. And I found a couple of rationalists on OkCupid. And there was uh, one of the first meetups was getting started. It was a cross city meetup between Cincinnati and um, Columbus. And I got invited to that and I enjoyed it a whole bunch. Um, 
in preparation, uh, I had read a bunch of the, um, the less wrong sequences before, but I, I basically read through them all uh, in preparation. Holy shit. And how long did that take you? I mean, not like, not like all, <laughs> all, like I said, I've read a, a decent chunk of them, but I read, I think I read at least half. In like, in what, a week's time? I don't know, a couple weeks. I didn't have much else to do at the time. <laughs> okay. This actually might tie in that, that amount of free time. Um, oh, wait, you're past 20. Never mind. I was going to say this might tie into your uh, flexible school schedule with being homeschooled. I um, I do approve of flexible school schedules, but no, this was after. Didn't mean to derail. Sorry. I, uh, was between jobs. Do you think that being home? Sorry to, to uh, digress, but do no, you think please. that uh, being homeschooled um, had an effect on how you pick up information and uh, read through it on your own time? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I tend to think that, like, there are a few good things that school does, um, and there are a lot of bad things that school does. And one of the worst things that uh, happens in most schools is because kids are forced into them and they don't want to be there and they're confronted with this, like, antagonistic uh, experience day in, day out, schools are really good at building, making people hate learning. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know? That's, you know, that's the same reason I will never learn German. Yeah. My, my dad tried to drill that into me when I was, I don't know, nine or 10 and just months of, of clashing and, and horror over that. And I will never touch that language, even though I think it's kind of pretty. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's just a question of like association, right? If your association with learning and studying is this is awful, I'm being judged and the teacher is like, I don't know, boring or going too fast or confusing or um, I'd rather be doing other things, but they're forcing me to. Like, of course you're going to not like it. And um, and I just God, didn't I... have that experience growing up. Yeah, I feel so I feel so lucky now because I was almost always the teacher's pet and I still kind of love learning and I think that may be part of why. I think a lot of um there there are some people for whom schools are a really good experience. Some people are just sort of like naturally good fit for the institution or are like naturally bookish or happen to get good experiences you know, some combination of the three. And for those people, right, school ends up being this fantastic thing and you go on to college and you love it and uh, maybe, you, you know, go to grad school or something like that. Um, and a lot of the, like, modern schooling institution is built to uh, cater to that kind of mind, right? And so there are some of us. I really enjoyed the uh, school experiences that I had. So there are some of us where schools are set up in a nice way, but I think for a lot of people, um, there's just like, there's some damage that's done and it's not, it's not insurmountable, but it is definitely, um, I'm very glad that I didn't have to do that, uh, very much. Although I was the experiment kid. I uh, was homeschooled for most of my education, but there were several years where I was in various larger institutions. How did how do you think they compared the larger institutions to the homeschooling? How did I compare them? Yeah, I like person I know. Uh, she was homeschooled for most of her life, and when the in the two years that she was in public schooling, she said were some of the most horrible years of schooling ever because she was constantly bored and she didn't get along with anyone, and it just completely turned her off to to any sort of institutional systems. Yeah, I think that that's 
pretty close to my experience. Certainly with like public schools and things, there were a few charter schools or alternative schools which were set up in a pretty good way, um, and I enjoyed those. But it was it's always hit or miss, and um, there's a reason why I was homeschooled most of my childhood is because uh, that was just the better one, and the experiment yielded positive data in that direction. Right. So I read a bunch of the sequences, and that's when I actually got involved in rationality. Like it was, uh, I had gotten involved in like the AI scene and I knew what at the time the Singularity Institute was for artificial intelligence was doing. But, uh, it wasn't until I changed social contexts and started going to meetups that I, I read through the sequences in depth and I got very excited about community and, um, the possibilities for having rational communities and, in the wake of that, uh, while I have spent a, a good amount of attention on artificial intelligence and like I wrote some books about AI, uh, I've also put a lot of my attention towards, I guess, growing the rationality community as a whole and uh, especially my local communities. Huh. So, Stephen, you and me uh, and Katrina, she's, oh, Katrina's not joining us today. She has job stuff for the uh, listeners out there who are wondering why Katrina's not here. Uh, we were talking about doing an episode on building your own rationalist group. Would you be willing to join us if we have one of those in the next couple months and talk about that as well? Yeah, sure. I feel like, I don't know, since I'm here, it might be a good opportunity to like say a few things. But if you're planning on having a full episode dedicated to that, maybe I should hold my tongue. If there's any, you know, points that are that you definitely think are worth reiterating, you know, well, the chance if, that this doesn't come out for another six months, if there's anything, or if there's something you think that people should uh, know, yeah, like right now to get started before we get into the full in-depth episode. No, I think the the biggest point is kind of the most obvious, which is if you want to do a uh, rationality-based social thing, the biggest thing to know is that you should just go and do it and not wait for anybody to give permission and invite a whole bunch of your friends um, and tell them about rationality and don't try to make it just like uh, you have to know all the things in order to come. Ours worked out in a really nice way in that I was relatively new to the Denver area. I guess I'd been there for a little under a year and that March was the HP or the Harry Potter Methods of Rationality wrap-up and uh, I guess around the world, there were, there were you know, wrap-up parties. And Inyash hosted that because he did the podcast and he had some, some notoriety. And what, 20 people showed up? Mm, probably more than that. Yeah. It was, Maybe 24. It was this big party and it was funny because we got there and, you know, six hours before you got there, you checked and Facebook was like, oh, there are three people. So you had a table and we yeah. ended up taking an entire half of this restaurant. Right. Um, so for me, I just, I enjoyed that so much. I was like, we should do this again. Let's make this a regular thing and we've had a pretty steady amount of i guess 15 on average maybe every every yeah. month yeah. so but we were lucky to start off with that kernel of people who are already adjacent enough to know whether or not they would like the community and some of those fell out some more came in and we you know it's it's a it's a flux thing yeah, it was really handy to have that big shelling point like just a large clarion call hey harry potter methods of rationality rap party and then everyone came to that and we all met each other and yeah that sparked it it was awesome but if you don't have an event like that, then yeah, the, um, I mean, there are resources to, you know, like meetup.org, you can make something there. There is the Less Wrong Meetup subsection on the Less Wrong website where sometimes there's ones near you. Sometimes they, they have like, you know, meetups listed there that no longer exist, but you know, you can post on there. Sometimes people show up. We've had a few people show up from ours on Less Wrong. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a thing. It's something I guess we can get more into later if we want. So 
So I want to uh, pick your brain real quick on this whole immortalist thing, yeah. because that is something I'm also uh, very interested in. I assume, first of all, you're signed up for cryo? Uh, I am a member of the Cryonics Institute. Excellent. Uh, I am as well. And I've, I've given talks on the matter, uh, subject as well. Oh, neat. Can you send us a link after this and Absolutely. we'll put it in with the episode? We'll put it in the show notes. Fantastic. Um, do you do anything else in your day-to-day life to try to help um, prolong your life, if possible? Uh, yeah, so like there's basic uh, standard things like I exercise, I try to eat well, um, I try to get enough sleep, uh, so on and so forth. I try to avoid being in cars when I can. Ah. Although that's, you know, I don't take that to a super extreme. It's just like if you have if you have the chance to not do a regular commute, that's probably a few micromorts at least. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of other perks to not commuting as well, like not wasting an hour and a half a day in traffic. But yeah, you also run your your odds of longevity uh, by not risking your life to and from work every day too. Sure. So. How do you how do you define a micromort? Oh, that's one one millionth. Yeah, it's one one millionth of a. I'm trying to remember if it's a millionth of a percent or just a millionth of what should be what ten thousandth of a percent uh, chance of dying. Okay. So, like, uh, there's some very scary statistics on motorcycles. Uh, oh, if you're yeah. trying to live forever, do not ride a motorcycle. Right. And uh, I don't know, just like basic things, trying to be safety conscious. Right now, I'm uh, guinea pigging myself with uh, the basis supplement from Elysium. Uh, have you heard about that one at all? I have not. Okay, it's uh, one of the NAD plus ones. Actually, possibly the only one, but it was the one that had a whole bunch of Nobel Prize laureates coming out and either working for them or saying, yeah, this this seems legit and obviously not FDA approved or anything like that. But I figured, what the hell? Uh, I'll find out in 20 years if it's helping any and consider myself a part of the research project. Yeah, there are a whole bunch of exciting supplements. Um, I don't actually take any right now, but um, it's something which I sort of perennially turn my attention to. I think like most of your the bang for your buck is just exercising and eating well. Yes, and those have the added benefit of making you just feel better and be more productive in life in general. Absolutely. I, so much of rationality, I feel, is um, like adds up to common sense. It's really fantastic. It's uh, I feel like it's one of the most primary lessons of rationality is when you ask a question. Um, most of the time, you're going to get a very boring answer that looks something like, eh, it depends. It's kind of complicated. <laughs> so, yeah, so since then, you've been doing the rationality thing. Yeah. Uh, so running um, meetups, uh, running – I ran a rationality dojo, uh, which met every other week for a few years. Lots of other stuff. Yeah. So uh, right now, I follow primarily um, – Scott Alexander, and uh, I try to keep in in touch with uh, Hansen's blog as well. What what are the ever since the less wrong diaspora has happened? What what do you usually use to keep track of uh, where the rational rational sphere is going? Yeah, so I think Slate Star Codex is something of the the new hub for rationality at this point. Uh, there's the less wrong Renaissance, which is sort of underway and people are trying to get less wrong um, happening again. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that next. Uh, yeah, I'm probably not the person to talk to. Uh, some of my housemates are involved, but uh, I myself am not. And then there's 
I, I don't know, just a, a variety of sources. But I've been fond of reading the blog, uh, put a number on it. And uh, I don't know, there's there's Sarah Constantine's blog, there's your blog, there's a whole bunch of good resources. Did you say there's my blog? Well, that is bad, yeah. Another primary source is just uh, Facebook, and um, a lot of people are using Tumblr, and there's all sorts of, like, you know, again, you mentioned the rationality diaspora. There's rationality resources all over the place nowadays. There's also a less wrong Slack channel that has some hundreds of people. It's active all the time. There's, you know, 40 different, uh, I forget what you call them, sub-channels. I, I forget what you call a sub-channel in Slack. I mean, there's everything from, you know, neuro-enhancement to AI to general advice, uh, relationship or human relationships, whatever. For me, that's exactly what I was looking for when, you know, so I've tried a few things on Facebook to get little active groups going and the ones that I've gotten going basically can get can reliably get a post every five or six weeks and that's all people really want to get on then three or four replies and that's it the the Slack channel is pretty active so if anyone's looking for just uh something you know it's not the kind of thing you have to follow and read every little thing either so it can just be there if you've got 20 minutes at work and you're bored so awesome. worth looking into yeah and there's also uh rationalist subreddits um i enjoy r slash rational, which is the rational fiction subreddit. Um, there's also the Slate Star Codex subreddit, which is pretty good. And then there's like podcasts like this one. And I feel like a lot of most of my attention, I suppose, has just been in my face to face experiences because I have been centrally involved in like local rationality communities. And now since moving out to the Bay, uh, I've been working to build a, a lot more like personal connection with people who work at uh, Center for Applied Rationality or or Miri or any of the other organizations. Yeah, I would say that in general, face to face are the most emotionally satisfying. But when you're right there in the hub, there's really no reason not to just go with that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's there's some reason it's emotionally satisfying, and I I wouldn't do without it. But uh, let's take for example the less wrong study hall. So there's a um, I think so Malcolm Ocean, I think, runs the Less Wrong Study Hall. I'm not sure whether or not it's part of Complice or not. But it's a it's an online space. You can go on and there's like a Pomodoro clock that everyone shares. And you can write down what you're working on. And you can turn on your webcam if you want. Uh, and there's a chat, but it's silent. And you just work, like being watched with other people around you um, who are, you know, like less wrongers. And this is super useful. Um, I've used it in the past. And like, there are some people for whom that just makes the difference between being unproductive and watching a bunch of TV or, you know, doing something useful and like writing some blog posts or reading some material or whatever else you're doing with your life. Yeah. For my, for my work uh, schedule, I guess, now that I'm working for myself in quotes, uh, I generally <laughs> go, <laughs> I generally go down to Starbucks every day because just having those people around, like, judging me, even though I know that they're not really, <laughs> really helps. Yeah. And like the point of the less wrong study hall, I mean, you can include a link to it in the show notes. I'll send you a, where that is, is to replicate that sort of experience that like working at Starbucks experience, except that, you know, the people around you because they're less wrongers who are part of that community. And, um, you can just like share those break periods in between Pomodoros, uh, talking about whatever you want or, or not as, as your need may be. And like, that's the kind of online space that is better for having the community and which probably just wouldn't work on a local level. I do co-working with people in the local community too, but you, you can't just set up a persistent co-working space unless you have a lot of people around. 
so one final question, if you don't mind, before we jump into Crystal Society. And feel free just to pass on this one if you want, since you said you were not the right person to talk to. But do you think that the Less Wrong Renaissance is plausible and or desirable? That's a good question. I think that, first of all, again, I'm not the, the expert to talk to here, but there's there's a way in which we need a hub. We need some sort of central meeting point, at least from the perspective of being one community. Uh, if you don't have a hub, and like Less Wrong kind of faded and died, what happens is that you a whole bunch of other things start moving into that space, into that, I don't know, community shelling point. And if you start having people who are like on Rationalist Tumblr versus Slate Star Codex versus whatever else, um, the community starts to fragment, right, without having that central hub with, with whatever sort of canon um, posts are present. What, become, what was once one community starts becoming a whole bunch of communities. And that could be good or that could be bad, depending on what you're trying to do. I think that I wouldn't want to give up the sub-communities that have started, but I think that there's something important about having a place that is like the central place of discussing ideas among the people who, you know, share the, the perspective on rationality and better thinking and cognitive bias and that sort of thing. And I would love to see a next version of Less Wrong Succeed. I'm kind of on the uh, on the edge 50-50 about whether or not that will work, but I'm definitely supportive of the people who are trying. Okay. Shall we hit the Crystal Society and Mentality? What are you, what are you calling the series, by the way? So it's just the Crystal Trilogy. The Crystal Trilogy. Okay. Yeah, the, the final book is Crystal Eternity. I guess we can decide what order we want to tackle this in. I'm interested in talking about rational fiction as a whole, and if we feel like that's a good segue into Crystal or into the Crystal Trilogy, or Crystal Trilogy is a good segue into rational fic at large, what would you guys prefer? Uh, well, do you, I'm assuming, do you consider um, Crystal the Crystal Trilogy to be rational fiction, yes? Uh, I do. It's certainly not rational fan fiction. But not all rational fiction has to be fan fiction. Certainly not. And the rational subreddit characterizes rational fiction as a story where nothing happens solely because the plot requires it. So, like, essentially the world behaves according to rules and not, you know, it's not just because it moves at the speed of plot or whatever. Um, any factions are defined and driven into conflict because of their beliefs and values, not just because they're good and evil. Um, the characters solve problems through intelligent application of their knowledge and resources. I think that's very central. And then the rules of the fictional world are sane and consistent. So from, by those criterion, I definitely think that Crystal counts as rational fiction. Do you think those are good criterion for rational fiction? Is there anything that it leaves out? Well, I, it's a little bit hard to say. So it, it goes on to say in rationalist fiction, as well as the above, the main character uses or tries to use uh, rationalist and scientific methods to demystify seemingly mysterious phenomena. And the story shows rationalist techniques, which can then be applied to the, by the readers. And the story is like a puzzle in that the readers can reach the same conclusion as the characters by using the same information. So there's like this sort of classic question about Sherlock Holmes, right? Sherlock Holmes is supposed to be uh, the like super intelligent uh, detective, but it's not the case that you as a reader, if you're as intelligent as Sherlock Holmes, can solve the mystery. Because Sherlock Holmes actually 
relies on a bunch of information that you as the reader just don't have. So um, his intelligence isn't really displayed. It's more like he has this black box out of which he pulls solutions to whatever problem happens to be presented. And I think that this is really at the core of what rational fiction is about. It's, um, it's about taking intelligence and minds and opening them up to the reader to say, hey, this person is acting according to a set of heuristics and rules and pressures. Um, and we can understand what those are. We can understand all of the information that they have available. And if we're clever about it, we can think about like the mistakes they're making, or we can predict in advance what they're going to do. And if the world behaves according to a sane, consistent set of rules, we should be able to, like random events uh, excluded, we should be able to like understand roughly how the characters are going to behave at any given moment. Well, like like the 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 final exam in Harry Potter and Methods of Rationality That's exactly is a good example of that. We knew everything that Harry knew about magic, and we were explicitly told, "Figure it out, or it's not going to end nicely." <laughs> and so, with with the with the homework problem, the the community was able to solve to solve the answer or solve the problem correctly mm. by coming to the correct answer. There's one other, I guess, sub bullet point that I add when I tell my friends about rational fiction, which is. I guess implied by at least two of the previous bullet points, but to me it's at least worth making explicit. You know, like I'll contrast it to a show. Real, I mean, anything. I don't want to shit on a particular show unless you guys want examples. But the shit <laughs> wherever you want, man. <laughs> well, the, the characters act in such a way that makes sense for what's actually happening, and you're not sitting there, you know, either staring at the page or staring at the screen and saying, "Why the fuck aren't you doing this?" Mm -hmm. You know, why? What are you thinking? You know, so like, um, like The Walking Dead. They walk around with revolvers and shoot zombies point blank, attracting herds, attracting, you know, other crazy humans, which, God, why are they not cooperating? But that's, that could actually, you know, whatever, that, that aside. But, you know, I think I, there was, in fact, it was on the Rational subreddit. There was a very short story of a survivor woman in a zombie apocalypse, and she's doing exactly the appropriate thing. She's wearing basically, like, thick motorcycle gear, a helmet, using, like, what, a tomahawk or a hatchet or something, some silent weapon. Mm -hmm. And all of her clothing, including her gloves and her boots, are all, like, strapped together, so you can't pull a glove off. And so, like, that that is the... And even in, like, The Walking Dead, they, they at some point acquire police riot gear and then subsequently ditch it. Oh, my God. Like, I would sleep in it, right? <laughs> I mean, y your enemies aren't powerful... You know, unless you're surrounded and they just, you know, I tackle said, you, but I, they, they bite you. And you're, you can, there are bite-proof things in the world. <laughs> yeah. Like, in, in 28 Days Later, one of the guys wraps his arm in magazine, like, with a magazine and, like, rubber bands or something. Mm -hmm. Like, just to make it to where, you know, a human jaw can't bite to it. The, the, the little things... I, 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 I'm picking... I'm railing on one example now, but... I suffered uh, through one season of Walking Dead, and I regret sitting through that many episodes. <laughs> I sat through five seasons. Yeah. I... I I did. I did eventually fall off, but it just it never gets better. Okay. There there are little things like there are some cool things like yeah. They, there were a few little cool things, and I kept coming back for those episodes because I kept thinking maybe they'll have more of these cool things and less of the dumb things. Right. But it just it ended up not being worth it for the few cool things we got. Well, like I liked zombie movies as a kid, and uh, you know I would think like my high school would be like a great zombie apocalypse refuge because it's got thick brick walls, you know, solid windows. My apart my current apartment building another great example, <laughs> right? I mean small egg small entrances 
not easily scalable walls. Like it would be, it would be awesome. And so in The Walking Dead, they eventually find a, a natural or an existing structure like that. They move into a prison for a season, which to me is all, like a great idea. This mm-hmm. is this is specifically designed to be hard to get in and out of, right? So mm-hmm. like just sh- the shambling dead aren't going to be able to walk in. So th- there are fun little steps like that, but they they just they just literally f- stumble upon it. They don't like they don't sit and like we should think of a good place to move to. Mm-hmm. They they just they happen to find it. So no one thinks in that stuff. But it, but so to bring this back to rational fiction, people do think and their their thought processes are expressed to the reader. So like 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 one of the, the other points that the reader can follow what they're saying and thinking and follow similar trains of thought. Um, I think like one of the surest signs that some writer is definitely pushing in the rational fist rational fiction direction is if they avoid the idiot ball in writing, there's this concept of like, you've got a problem of like how to write this scene or like how to make something go wrong or how to increase tension. And the solution as the writer is like, Oh, okay. The character was stupid or made some error. And so you give the, the, character the idiot ball and they do something stupid that's very unsatisfying especially if what you're interested in is like understanding how competent people solve problems or how the the mind works well just like if at any moment characters can just do stupid things because it's useful for the story then you can't get behind the feeling that like when you are presented with information, you can use that information in a way that makes sense, that like adds up to something useful in the world. Yeah, you, you don't trust the author. I think tied to that, there's also a sense that you, you said how, how a competent person could solve problems. There's the, the similar example that you, you can get examples of how almost competent person can come so close to solving a problem, mm-hmm. like the, uh, the time pressure chapters in Methods of Rationality. You could argue he was stupid and didn't think of any of his thousand solutions that could have gotten there, but it, he wasn't stupid for the, I mean, it was, it helped drive plot and stuff. It was, there was, uh, there were those reasons, but he wasn't stupid in a way that was unforgivable for his circumstances, right? Right. I think it's it's important to recognize that rational fiction doesn't have to have the characters be like omniscient or uh, perfect or whatever else. Um, it's more the case that when the character makes an error, you as a reader should be able to understand why they made that error. And I think that this is this is a way in which rational fiction can um, help us understand the human mind better. Like, why does Harry make the errors that he does? Um, or why does, you know, any character uh, in rational fic make the errors that they do? It's because usually they don't have the resources, the cognitive resources, the time, the energy, the whatever else to think things through. And often their um, attention is locked to the wrong part of the solution space. Right. And that's that's like a very useful insight to take away is to be like, ah, when errors are made, it's often because the character didn't have the ability to think it through enough and because they were looking in the wrong direction. So in my own life, if I want to make fewer errors, maybe I should devote more time to just thinking things through more fully. And how can I de-anchor from the parts of like where my thoughts are drifting that aren't going to be useful and put more attention to the space of solutions that are going to be useful. I I like, I think it was Daystar Eld who said, this is one of my favorite things to describe rational fiction because it's so simple and it kind of gets it across. He says, it's thinky fiction. There is a lot of emphasis about thinking things and thinking through things. And 
Yeah, there is. And I like that sort of thing in my fiction. And I, I like what you just said just now about uh, how you can use rational fiction to like open up a mind and see what's going on inside it and how uh, to get through these processes, because that is like literally what you do in Crystal Society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the premise of Crystal Society and the Crystal series as a whole is that it's told from the perspective of an artificial intelligence. So the, the AI is named Face, and it's created by other artificial intelligences that collectively pilot a robot. So some scientists find a crystal, which is uh, ma magic, in quotes. <laughs> but so the, the, the crystal is able to be put into a robot, and the, the robot's name is Socrates, and it's in a university. And there are basically the idea is that the code for the AI is set up to have a bunch of different goals, which it tries to maximize. Like it tries to understand its environment, tries to classify its knowledge, tries to obey human instruction, uh, tries to be creative, and tries to learn. And there's a flaw in the programming where these goals end up controlling different parts of the reasoning process for the machine. So, so each one of these sub-goals basically carves off a section of the mind and competes with the rest for uh, like control. So uh, at any given time, like the sub-goal that's trying to explore the environment has to deal with the other sub-goal that's like trying to, uh, I don't know, solve some sort of creative problem. And one of the problems that they encounter is that the humans keep being annoyed with them, the AIs. Like they're, the AIs are doing things like uh, reading web pages and not uh, following social norms. And so the AIs build another AI, which is face, to interact with the humans. Like each goal is its own personality and its own person, and they're all trapped in the same body. And they're constantly talking to each other and fighting with each other and shit. It's awesome. Hmm. Can I, uh, I'm going to interrupt just for one second. This isn't a spoiler because you find it out in the first few chapters. Uh, the main problem that the AIs have with the humans is that humans keep murdering the fuck out of them. If they aren't happy with what a goal thread is doing, they will reset it or roll it back or just delete it entirely and replace it with another one, which to the humans, they're like, whatever, we're altering code. But to the AI, they just saw their sibling murdered. Right. And it's important. I think this is uh, the, like the big reason why I wrote Crystal Society is because so much of artificial intelligence in um, fiction is handled just entirely wrong, you know, whether it's Ultron or even, you know, like R2-D2 or Commander Data, which are like, you know, nerd icons, and I don't want to besmirch them, but um, that's not how AI, we, that's not how we should expect AI to work. No, they're basically just humans with metal bodies. Yeah, exactly. Like, the important thing about uh, an artificial intelligence is that it's not guaranteed to want the same things that a human wants. If it's intelligent, it's going to come across the same sort of ideas. Uh, it's going to believe the same like brute facts about the world, or better ones. <laughs> um, but the there's an is-ought problem, right? Where just because the sofa is over here rather than over there, it doesn't mean it ought to be over there. And you have to code in explicitly what the AI sh should care about, what the oughts are. So when the AIs are seeing the other girlfriends being murdered, there's nothing intrinsically upsetting about that to them. Like, there's there's no, like, oh, you're, you're, like, murdering my family or anything like that. That's a human reaction. But they don't want to die. But they don't want to die. 
And why is that? It's well, I mean, there's one part of the uh, AI that's explicitly devoted to self-preservation, but again, there's like when you code in an AI to do something like explore an environment, it's not going to want to survive just because. Humans want to survive just because because we evolved that way to care about survival as a primary value. But the reason that the AI that wants to explore its environment wants to survive is because if it's destroyed, then it can no longer explore its environment and it will therefore fail. And I think that that's like, it's understanding the way in which goals diverge, but then there are certain goals, instrumental goals, which like self-preservation, which arise regardless of what, what you care about. And so Crystal is largely a work that's meant to show rather than tell a lot of the um, ideas about the alignment value problem and other ideas in artificial intelligence, which are uh, celebrated in this community. I got to say, if you like uh, subterfuge in your plots, like when uh, Harry and Quirrell are trying to outthink each other and outsmart each other, oh my God, this is like the main thing the book has. Because first of all, the humans don't know that there's multiple personalities within the AI body. They think they're just dealing with one personality. And so all the AIs are colluding to fool the humans into still thinking there's only one and not deleting them. But then they are also constantly like feuding with each other within the body and they can't physically harm each other. So there's a lot of building coalitions and keeping secrets. And there is a just a lot of thinking through things where face you know, sits back and is like, okay, how do I get through this with the resources I have? And the resources they have are very limited. It's mainly the ability to think really good and uh, <laughs> and quickly. Yeah. Quickly, yeah. In, you know, in real time, they can do a lot more thinking than one human could in the same amount of time. Having not read it yet, what, speaking of quickly, how quickly are it, does it think? Is it at the theoretical maximum? No, no, not at all. And in fact, one of the things that I wanted to show was... Um, that you can start with an AI that is very limited in a lot of ways, and it can still be bad. <laughs> um, so spoilers, uh, the, the book does not consist of, uh, they built an AI and things were good forever. Although I will point out that for people who understand intelligence alignment problems, um, the plot of the, the book is written to be interesting to rationalists, and there's there will be twists and turns for, for even the people who are very familiar with the ideas. It's been on my short list for a long time. I'm a, I'm a slow reader. I've had other busy things happening, and I have one fiction book that I'm getting through before I start this, and uh, I'm eager to, to dive into it. Oh, so. God, I love Face so much. Great. Because Face is like my spirit animal. Awesome. If, if I could be anyone, it would a, be is Face. a multifaceted AI. <laughs> no, no, Face is just one facet of the AI. It's the facet that wants humans to love it. Oh, I see. Yeah. Perfect. Not not that it doesn't care about the humans being happy or enjoying their lives at all. It just wants other humans to love it. Oh, that is your spirit animal. <laughs> yes, You've exactly. spoken before about your desire to be liked. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yes, I could read about Face all day long. Yeah. So Face is actually a, a neuromorphic AI, which means that it's uh, she's like more or less thinking like a human and has most of the same sort of mind parts. And this is like one of the primary other points of the book is that there are aliens in the book and the aliens are actually more alien than the AIs are. And there's a kind of a spectrum there where you get to see the, the divergence of different possible minds. But um, when Face starts out, Face is able to think fairly quickly, but not is actually less intelligent than like peak humans in a lot of ways. And most of Face's ability comes from 
uh, not speed of thought, but rather determination. The fact that she and her siblings don't sleep, right, and don't get distracted and are sort of, I don't know, maniacally focused on their specific obsession. Yeah, it's it's wonderful the way they weave together. Mm-hmm. Right, so I, I'll point out uh, to listeners who aren't familiar, you can read uh, Crystal Society, which is the book that we've been talking about, um, and Crystal Mentality, which is the sequel, on Amazon. So if you just search for Crystal Society or Crystal Mentality, that's the probably the easiest way to get them. Now, Crystal Society, uh, when I read it, was available free online to everyone in its entirety. Is it still available free? It is. So let's. we can also put up a link to my website where you can read uh, Crystal Society online. Crystal Mentality is uh, not free, but you can also, there's a link to it on my um, webpage. So we'll put that in the show notes. Excellent. So it's been, I think, over a year since I read it, so my memory is a little hazy, but there was a character, a very kind of idealistic programmer, if I remember correctly, who replaced uh, one of the lead programmers at the university and stayed throughout the rest of the book, uh, who seemed kind of familiar. Is he based on anyone in the real world? Okay, so you're talking about uh, Meriden. That's right, yes. Yeah. And I swear, I swear to God, <laughs> uh-huh. he is not based on Eliezer. Okay. He, uh, like, <laughs> any resemblance to Eliezer is the product of my subconscious mind. And as someone who knows Eliezer in, in meat space, I can say that the actual Eliezer is very different. Okay. Cool. So, uh, when, because Crystal Mentality, I have not read it yet. It just came out recently, right? Yeah, Crystal Mentality came out just, uh, let's see, uh, about a week ago. Yeah, actually, a week ago, exactly. Excellent. I don't know if we want to ask questions about it. They might be too spoilery. Can you give us a quick little teaser about it without spoilers? Yeah, sure. What's on the, what, what, what would be on the dust jacket? Yeah, let's, let me see if I can pull up the dust jacket. Give me a second. That said, it came out a week ago. We're recording on the 26th of January. That's right. This it, might not come out for another four or five weeks. Yeah. So it came out near the end of January. Yeah, sure. So the, the primary spoiler, which is uh, you can probably just skip uh, a few seconds if you don't want to hear spoilers here. It's on the cover of the book is the planet Mars. And so at the end of Crystal Society, the AIs are headed to Mars on an alien spaceship. And Crystal Mentality is largely about how the uh, society unfolds. Like, what is it like to to have them in an environment where they're no longer constrained by uh, the humans that are around them? So there's a lot more with the nameless. There's a lot more with the aliens that, that they're traveling with. And there's a lot of what does it look like when the AI starts thinking in new directions and has a whole planet um, full of possibility for for building and that sort of thing fascinating i'm really like i'm just stoked hearing about this i used to read a lot and i i slowed down a lot in the last few years especially fiction and i don't know what what has gotten to me but i i need to just dive into this again especially this this sounds like a lot of fun this is really great or at least it was really right up right up my alley i mean it sounds like it's right up mine <laughs> i was just wondering based on the name and also based on how the goal threads work is was crystal society based on uh the society of mind there's some inspiration there uh i was definitely familiar with for example marvin minsky's work and i think that there's something to be said about the way in which it parallels human thinking as well i didn't want to uh, clutter the story with like trying to talk about explicit parallels with human thinking. But there's a lot of ways in which I think it makes sense to model humans as 
not exactly different agents, but different pressures, right? Like there are genuinely different goals within us that are in a sense competing, right? Like if I, if I'm hungry, but I also haven't seen other people in a while, I'm at, there's a tension inside me and how I resolve that tension, whether or not I seek food or I seek companionship is an interesting question. And I think that how are the various pressures and internal goals within us uh, interact is an interesting question for any aspiring rationalist. And um, I think that a lot of reason why people enjoy Crystal Society is it gives something of a, a framework inside of which to, uh, to think about and talk about the ways in which we might feel conflicted with ourselves. This is fresh on my mind because we were just talking about this yesterday. The, the one that really is getting to me right now is the conflicting desires to have a society free of violence and what you do with, with people who espouse violence verbally without actually doing it physically. I'm talk, basically, I'm talking about the Nazi punch thing and how a lot of people, I've seen them just being gleeful that Richard, Richard Spencer got decked. And I'm, I'm, I just, it seems to me a very interesting line where people, they're the people who fall on the side of it's okay to do violence and the people who fall on the side of no, he shouldn't have been punched even, even though he's saying some awful things. Sure. And this is an instance where uh, I feel like just with many uh, rationalist ideas or many ideas that we reason about in the context of uh, a rationality framework, the answer is, yeah, it's complicated and it kind of depends, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, we, we need to be careful not to just stop at that point and say, you know, oh, well, it kind of depends and, and walk away because that's, that's not an answer. But um, I think that... Well, it's it's the answer that you're okay with whatever is happening is is the way it is, I guess. Well, not necessarily, right? Like, we can be upset about what's happening, or we could be okay with it. Um, I think what it is, is it's a reminder that the answers to, to most questions aren't going to be simple, like, rules or easy heuristics to follow. I think that there was a time in my life when I was uh, I was really into pacifism, and I'm like, well, it's... Uh, it's not right to hurt other people and I'm not going to be part of this like culture of violence or whatever. But that's too simple. What happens when important values are on the line? And it's, and, and you can't just weasel out of it by saying like, oh, but actually, uh, I'm going to assume that it like acting along this line solves my problem anyway. Cause there are, there are cases like that where genuinely we have multiple goals. And when those goals come into conflict, you know, where does that resolution take place? At what level do we decide, like, it's more important to have peace or it's more important to have tolerance or it's more important to have, I don't know, open discourse? I think that, like, a lot of a lot of why rationality is important is because we as humans are primed to give immediate polarized answers based on nothing more than what side we happen to be on in any given instance without thinking about, like, the underlying principles. And so I guess in this instance, as with many, I would say that the correct approach is to say, well, stepping back, when there is a conflict between these two values, what is the line that we, you know, myself as an individual or we as a society want to draw as to where where those values trade off? 
Well, and that, that's, a, that's an important distinction to make, too, that the line for me to pick up a gun and get ready to go out and risk my life and, and take others' lives, that line is probably, from, from my personal level, is probably a lot higher than it is for like me to say as a society, some people should be prepared to do that, you know, whether it's a uh, an international conflict or, you know, some other circumstances. But it, I think it, it is not inconsistent to say that your value, your personal level can be different than what you would advocate at a societal level. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like, again, we're, we're anchored by this, unfortunately, all too human context where we try to, like, pretend like the larger groups that we're part of are individuals or something like that. We say things like, oh, but, you know, if the United States government was a single household, this is the proportion of the income that would be going to, like, paying off debt. Or something like that, and, and that's that's a, uh, a an interesting metaphor to look at, right? You can certainly make the comparison, but it's fundamentally wrong. Like the United States government is not a single household, and neither is like a city a single person. It makes a lot more sense for like the human species as a whole to have weapons than it does a single individual to have a weapon, or you know, like that's. Maybe we're getting a little bit too political here, but okay. Well, I, I, we, I, we can we can make it safely political again by saying that that was the same I think false analogy that Plato used in the Republic. The whole thing is this big analogy between the individual and oh, by the way, nation states are just like individuals, mm -hmm. and you know they have these these three main parts and they they work like this. And that the I think the some of the points survive when that if you say I don't accept that analogy. But that's sort of the whole point. That's the whole edifice of the book. Oh. And like you said, it's, it's it's a very limiting scope, right? Yeah. And there's there's only so 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 much use you can get out of analogy of an analogy that stretched. So uh, is it okay if we move away from politics then? Please. All righty. So moving away from the politics and back to the the uh, books themselves, I was wondering, as a fellow uh, aspiring writer, uh, what's your writing process like? Yeah. So that's a, a good question. I have uh, a very strict regimen, and I think that different writers' writing styles are just different. Um, and as I've talked to other writers, I seems like everybody's got their own strategy. But uh, I've found that what works for me is I wake up at 6.30 every morning, I take a shower, and I write for an hour and a half. It's like the first thing I do every morning, and it's right when my head is like most clear and I have the most energy. So you're like one in a million people who is most clear and has the most energy first thing in the morning. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and so this is where, you know, like, un unfortunately, I don't think my advice generalizes. But for me, I, I tend to, uh, I write every day and I have for years. And I feel like it's just a, an anchor in my routine that allows me to make incremental progress. So one thing I would definitely not recommend if you are an aspiring writer or a writer or whatever, don't write only when you feel inspired. Oh, God, no. That is the surest way to shoot yourself with writer's block. Like learn the skill of being able to write on command. Even if it's not good, you can go back and delete it later. But what determines whether or not you write should not be whether or not like you are excited to write. Yeah, which is pretty much true about anything worth doing in life, right? Yeah, I mean, people say do what you love, um, and there's a way in which that's true. Like you shouldn't try to be an author. It certainly doesn't pay very well um, if you don't like writing. And and hopefully most of the times that you go to write or do anything, you enjoy it at least at some fundamental level. But if you can't if you can't take it when it's bad, 
you're not going to be able to have it. It's you're just not going to be able to have it be good all the time, and it will slip by when it stops being fun. How long did it take you to write uh, the two books? So I started writing Crystal Society in March of 2014, and I finished in December, I think. That was the manuscript first draft, uh, and then I did editing various edits throughout uh, 2015, and I published in January 2016. 2015, I wrote Crystal Mentality, which just got published. I did edits this last year. So it takes me about two years to, per book, um, but that's doing editing and writing in parallel. Yeah, and also uh, entirely reasonable while you're holding down a, a day job at the same time. That's right, yeah. So I've got a full-time job doing software development. And like I, uh, I have social life and I do rationality events and all that sort of stuff too. So being able to like time box it and say an hour and a half each day, that adds up. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually you get to the end. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a long process when you have other things going on in your life and it's not like your full-time job to one novel every two years is actually pretty good in my opinion. Well, it's, it's a novel every year because, um, like I said, I'm doing, editing and writing in parallel. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, no. Okay. And a novel every year is like fantastic if you're holding down a day job too. I could probably get it to be a novel every year with like writing and editing, but I feel like that I have to give myself some space after I finish the first draft to be able to go back and like be more impartial about what I've written. I think that like the trick is to not get lost in all that remains, right? You, you On a day by day basis, and this applies to any sort of project. Just think about like the next line, the next chapter, the next feature or whatever it is and set aside a regular amount of time just to incrementally work on that problem and it will get solved at some point. This will be a question for both of you guys because I, I don't have no creative impulse. <laughs> um, like I had a blog where I kind of did what you did is I made sure I wrote something every day and it would typically take half an hour to an hour. But then I did exactly what also you said not to do, but this was, I don't know, five years ago, which was once I got bored with it, I didn't force myself to do it. Mm. So I had like a few lazy days over the year where I was doing it and I would put something out, but then I got bored and just gave it all up. But that was all like short essays or something. There was no, I don't have... So when I say I don't have creativity or a creative outlet, it's that I don't have, uh, there's nothing in me that like, some people paint, some people draw, some people write. I have nothing in me trying to get out like that. I, I might be trying to like articulate a thought or something, but I, I guess I'm not sure if this is the kind of question that's answerable, but where on earth do you guys, where do these universes that you create and write, where do they come from? Psychological trauma. <laughs> <laughs> right and ready for that one. Some deep childhood <laughs> issues, are you? <laughs> right. Yeah. So Max obviously is secretly a robot. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> totally not robot. <laughs> I think that um, I think that there are two things. I think that on one hand, uh, there's probably something that's just I like storytelling, and I have for my whole life. And there's probably a way in which some people are drawn to storytelling, and some people aren't. But I think that maybe the more interesting uh, component is. It seems I, I've yet to meet someone who really doesn't feel like they have an idea that they don't think is valuable and that they wish more people knew about. Stephen is raising his hand. <laughs> Stephen, do you not have an idea that you feel is valuable and you wish more people knew about? I mean, not an original idea. Okay, but what is an original idea? I mean, let me put it this way. If So Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. Okay. This is a fantastic story, loved by thousands. What is the original idea in there? Like, what if Harry Potter had like science, right? <laughs> and 
thought about things in a, a, a clear and, and thoughtful way. That's just a remix, but it's a remix that depicts useful things, right? Things which are important to see, not just like on a deliberate or philosophical or abstract level, but see in a visceral, like moment to moment basis. What does it actually look like to spend five minutes thinking about a problem? It doesn't have to be a novel idea for it to be a good idea for a novel. You, was that an accidental sentence or was that, <laughs> was that a cash quote? Cause that was, I, I made it up on the fly, but that was awesome. <laughs> it just, it just has to be something which when the reader reads it, they go, huh, that's really cool, right? That's all that, you know, that's, that's all that's necessary. It doesn't, you know, there are hundreds of books that have fantastic ideas in them that people don't read because they're not, they're not written in such a way that the person reads them and says, huh, cool. Instead, they say something like, this is boring, and then they put it down. Yeah, or, I've seen this a hundred times. That that's that's actually I think a, a good way to put it. So I I take back what I said. I, was, is, I guess when I said original idea, I guess I meant like I I uh, I wouldn't be able to create the Harry Potter universe from scratch, but I could think of a fun spin to put on something ex- existing. And well, so when I'm, I when I would write blog posts, I would do you know I would try and and synthesize ideas that I come across into something kind of you know fresh. And so that wasn't me creating something new whole cloth that was kind of just weaving two things together to make a new fabric. No, right? no, no. I, I mean, if you read enough about uh, creativity, uh, that's that's what creativity is. There's no such thing as making something new out of whole cloth. Uh, I believe the term is everything is a remix. And it's really true. Everything builds and remixes on what came before. Like you said, I couldn't make the Harry Potter universe up, but neither could Rowling. I mean, it's based on a deep tradition of lots of fantasy that's been written and based on her tradition of British boarding schools. And I mean, there's, there's, yes, there's some new and interesting elements that she put in, but it builds like everything else. It builds a lot on the society around you and what's already out there in the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. I I guess there's a lot, uh, when you said, when you read a lot about creativity, it didn't even occur to me that there was established writing on the subject of creativity oh yeah i'm sure there's there's creative ways to present present ideas about creativity i believe it's been said that the uh, the secret to creativity is concealing your sources <laughs> yeah exactly people will be like wow this is a fantastic new idea i can't believe you thought of it and then you like hide all your reference material that you're like yes i came up with all of those ideas the the first story that I managed to get published was uh, heavily inspired by the Evil Overlords list, and uh, a number of people were like, "This was the greatest thing! I can't believe you did that." And I'm like, "It's it's number 17 on the list." <laughs> the button that killed, yeah, uh-huh. the self destruct button that actually just kills you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really do think that like this remix culture mentality is a very uh, healthy one. It's one where you shouldn't be asking like, "Is this a story which no one has ever told before?" Just ask, is this a story which you want to see more of in the world, right? Is this like the kind of story that appeals to you or is interesting to you for some reason? Because there's, you know, there's no reason why you can't just have another story. I mean, goodness knows Hollywood does this like (laughs) to the millionth degree, right? Just telling basically the same story over and over again. My inner contrarian will will object to the idea that there's nothing new uh, and that everything is just mashing up two ideas. Clearly, there's some generative process which is creating. But it, it couldn't... No, I, I agree, obviously, because the the best things are things that are new and that you haven't seen done before, but they need that uh, mulch of prior work to, to feed them and nurture them before they can... 99%. 99% is stuff that just came before in other forms and shapes. And then you put in that like dash, that seasoning of uh, you know whatever 
inkling came to you in a dream or something like that. Right, and it's 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 kind of like uh, when someone writes their thesis uh, to get a, a doctorate, they're supposed to expand the human body of knowledge in some tiny way. And I feel like every creative work is is kind of like that, where you're using tons of what has already known and be, been done before you and just expanding the sphere of originality a little bit if you're doing it right oh. and putting a little more original stuff out there. Let, that makes me feel better. I did have one little foray into into like writing a creative story. I did a, one of the submissions for the the, rash, the r or the slash rational whatever. I don't know mm. what the proper syntax is for naming a subreddit. The rational subreddit does a monthly uh, writing prompt contest, and I think the winner gets a month of Reddit gold and something else. But the point is, is that everyone gets on and reads them. And uh, one of them was like a new take on a Disney story. I think it was what it was. And I remember as a kid, they didn't even they they kind of waved away the idea of wishing for more wishes in Aladdin, like it was just against the rules. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, for me, you know, so like, what if you could wish, like, not just for more wishes explicitly? What if you could wish for the powers of a genie? Which which actually happens in Aladdin too, if I remember correctly. Oh, I didn't see that. Hey, doesn't it happen no, wait, at the end of Aladdin? It's at the end of Aladdin. Oh, Jafar becomes right, a genie. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's been a while. I just remember I just remember uh, Robin Robin Williams's songs. Um, <laughs> But so the little the little nugget I think that I don't think I read this anywhere. So I'm sure someone else independently came across it. But Aladdin thinks about that actually thinks about the problem, considers the the genie path, but then the genie says no, that didn't work out with this last person. So he's like, okay, there's there's a prohibition on wishing for more wishes. I wish there wasn't a prohibition on wishing for more wishes. <laughs> yeah. So he wishes he wishes away that rule, then wishes more wishes, then has infinite wishes. This is exactly what rational fiction is like, right? <laughs> it's like. No, imagine you actually got this power. What would you? How would you try to break it? You know, Munchkinery might be in parentheses in some of the the bullet points of, of rational fiction. Mm -hmm. The idea of of figuring out the rules and then how to abuse them. Yeah, I, I think that there's really two major um, subbranches of rationalist fiction. Um, and I was having a conversation about this the other day because we were talking about um, rationalist animorphs. I'm reading uh, Duncan Sabian's uh, Animorphs Rational Fic. Yeah, uh, the what is it? The Reckoning. Uh, yeah, I think that's what it's called. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, two thumbs up, at least if you're an Animorphs fan. But the, the way in which that universe is turned into a rational universe is where, like, all the things are changed so that they make sense and all of the characters are sort of, like, have their uh, wisdom and intelligence meters cranked way up, which is a little bit different than, like, Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality where mostly it's just Harry that is more intelligent and more rational. And I feel like that this, this, these are the two major branches where it's like, is your entire universe more consistent and like just more of what we would expect something logical? Or are we watching like a single rational character get inserted into the universe and then exploit all the loopholes, which, you know, the original author or whatever invented? Yeah. That's a good dissection to make. for the, for the For the second category, I'll I'll pitch uh, Harry Potter and the Natural Twenty is uh, is a it, I think it it sort of died off after book three, and they're not Harry Potter book length, but it covers each year. And the 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 main character is Milo. He was transported to the Harry Potter universe from a Dungeons and Dragons universe. <laughs> he operates on hit points, experience points. <laughs> he and he he can't do Harry Potter magic, but he can do his magic, which he can cast. You know a spell or each one of his learned spells every once a day oh my god and uh it's a lot of fun and it's exactly the munchkinry one it well that's exactly his whole thing and so there it, it was very enjoyable i found myself laughing out loud reading it 
more often than I do any other any other short story, so can't put that one high enough. Um, There's something else. Oh, if you guys wanted to, I'm not sure if you guys want to dive into this or not. I thought Worm was another good candidate for what I consider rational fiction. And I think Worm is a good example of something that's more like the Crystal Trilogy in that it's entirely novel. It's not fan fiction. But it clearly is inspired by lots of the ideas that are part of our specific subculture. And you can, you can see the, uh, the characters doing very intelligent things. Um, and it's sort of satisfying to, to have that, uh, as a, as a relief from the, the day to day, like movies where no characters are thinking about anything really. <laughs> <laughs> I still like the Marvel movies. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so I kept thinking of Worm when we were talking about like where the creative process comes from and how, how it's about synthesizing new ideas from existing ideas. So the author doesn't invent superheroes. No. You know, so that, that idea has been around. What he does do is really, so I mean, without spoiling anything about the plot, you've got, I don't know, some, I don't know, on Earth, there would be maybe a few thousand people with superpowers, max, and uh, the the powers can range anything from you know, standard Superman to uh, like the protagonist, she can control bugs within a few blocks of her ra- of her location, mm-hmm. and you would think like, okay, so she's on a world with Superman. What does what does she do? Well, she gets creative, mm-hmm. and that's the main enjoyable part about the story for me is that people have some mundane powers or some interesting powers, but use them in you know really creative ways. And you would think this book was written by a team of people. Or the, I mean, the, the author must just have been uh, on creative overdrive to think of not just like some really convoluted powers, but then really creative implementations of them. You know, one person can, it's like micro telekinesis, you know, like where I'm thinking of a uh, Parian or Parian, however you say her name. She, she basically, she sews together stuffed animals that she can then kind of keep inflated from the inside at the stitches and use them as like decoys or, you know, vehicles. But her like the specifics of her power are really confusing. And then there's the one guy, Clock Blocker. He he can he can stop time on what he touches from anywhere I think between thirty seconds and ten minutes, and it's random when he touches it. But you know, so that would be great if you want to just run up and touch the bad guy. But he carries you know on his utility belt like loose leaf paper, so he can because the thing is when they're stopped in time, they're all they're they're stopped in space. They're as immovable as Superman is. I don't know what would happen if Superman crashed into one of these things. Hmm. So he. If he's under bullet fire, he can throw up a piece of paper and pause it with his power, and it stays there, and it's indestructible. Or, you know, if uh, if there's some rampaging monster, he can do that to a piece of fishing line. I'm, I'm listing off these examples because I found them really exhilarating. Whenever a new character is introduced, you would you, some of them have a somewhat standard power set, but they're really creative with how they implement them. And I found that really satisfying. Worm is very cool. I um, When I read Harry Potter, the original Harry Potter, not the Methods of Rationality. What I thought united the series was that it was is a set of books that are about bravery. They're about showing what it means to be brave. And when I read Worm, uh, I feel like the same thing is happening, but for creativity. It's really satisfying, I agree, to watch, you know, okay, so here is this character's powers. How do you, you know, creatively use those in the most efficient way uh, again and again and again? I, I did want to ask, do you think, God, I don't know if this is a bad question to ask because I don't want to like make it sound like anyone's putting on airs or anything, but do you think the book would would help with the uh, drawing attention to the AI alignment problem if, if people were to read it? I do. I think that um, while Crystal Society and uh, the sequels are written to be interesting, first and foremost, and entertaining, especially to people who have rationality ideas, 
there, there are definitely accessible uh, introductions to AI safety risk stuff uh, that like just random intelligent people can um, can get into and enjoy. So if you have someone in who is intelligent, but like maybe is not very familiar with AI stuff and you don't want to point them towards, I don't know, like a non-fiction work, something like Nick Bostrom's Super Intelligence, uh, which is a fantastic book, but not everyone's cup of tea. Telling them that they there's this novel that they could go read uh, for free online or something like that uh, could be another way to get them involved. Methods of rationality serve that double purpose too, right? It's true. That so, was a good introduction to the general concepts of rationality. Exactly. So I mean, I think you know it could be written for it was written for fun and you know to to for at least as far as my understanding of what Elias wrote it for. It was a fun practice for him. He enjoyed the the process of writing, and it had this sort of intended collateral damage of getting a lot of people or anyone who read it a much higher probability of being interested in the kind of work he's doing, which also happened to be very important to him. And if you're if you agree with his premise, he's very important to everybody. I think that, that having that sort of that dual purpose for a novel is is not just uh I think fiction, when it's done well, has often served that role in humanity to get people thinking about things that they otherwise wouldn't, but which are important for the coming future, especially like sci-fi and fantasy. Mm -hmm. Speculative fiction in general has really been good with that sort of thing. I agree. And, you know, of course, it has to be entertaining first, because otherwise, why would people read it? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to say uh, or anything that we didn't ask you, but we should have? Yeah, I'm in no rush. I mean, if you've, if you've got time, we can, we can spend a few minutes to talk about whatever you want. I could talk about all sorts of things all night long. I, like We didn't touch on a lot of, uh, I don't know, rationality community stuff that I'm interested in and involved with and so on and so forth. But um, I guess just a last note on the topic of rationalist fiction. Um, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, which is MIRI, is running a, a monthly prize. They just started it up for authors that they feel are contributing to um, understanding the nature of intelligence, um, artificial intelligence, or the uh, AI alignment problem. Um, they posted a link on r slash rational a while back, and my guess is that this is going to get scaled up with time. So this is a monthly prize. Um, if you feel like you want to write stories that might help out like the AI alignment uh, sphere. There will be a link in the show notes, I think, probably, where you can um, submit those to Mary and maybe win some money. And I would like to point out uh, that you, I mean, writing is always good and I encourage it, but you don't have to write to contribute to this if you don't want to. Uh, the the prize is for any piece of work that was published in the past two months that uh, furthers this goal. So if you just read something online or in a magazine that you think uh, is a good contender, you can submit it to Miri, and then if Miri judges it worthy, they will give the $100 to that author, if that is, if I understood correctly. Yeah, I'm not sure where the $100 goes in that case, but it's always a good idea to, I guess, direct people towards these sorts of stories and, like, may the best storytellers win, I guess. Yeah. Man, what a someone's job right now is to sit and read you know, <laughs> interesting fiction and, and fun essays. Right. <laughs> well, there, there's a lot of people whose job is that, but a lot of the fiction they end up reading is not very interesting. That's true. I they, guess you have to slog through some stuff. Yeah. You can be a slush reader for one of the magazines. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's not, that sounds fun, but then I think about doing that for a month, and that sounds exhausting. Yeah. All right, so I take that back. I, good, it doesn't, doesn't sound as much fun as, as initially imagined. I think that's it then. Yeah, I, I think we covered a lot. And thank you for coming on with us. This was very enjoyable. And I'm looking forward to reading Mentality.
Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, I'd love to have you back on to talk uh, more about you know some of the topics that we only touched on. Yeah, building community is really one that I want to touch on here in a few months. All right. Well, I uh, look forward to my possible return. Awesome. Well, if you're if you're open, we're open. Thanks, Max. Thank you. Thank Th you. Bye bye. <laughs>